Never once does God do anything for His children that is not for their maximum eternal benefit. see is this power of the man and they know nothing of his goodness and his grace and his even though he has been loving and kind and so gentle and graceful graceful with this demon demonized man nonetheless they don't know him and so all they can do is be afraid of him and that is lost humanity those outside of Christ they can hate God They can distrust God. They can malign God. They can speak lies of God. But they can only fear Him in a sinful way, in a sinful, fearful way, in a way that brings the dread and the terror that is the rightful dread and terror of one who stands before the power of God without the covering of Christ covering their sin. So that's the first thing that we see is that they are they're, they're terrified. They're tremendously terrified. And they can only be terrified because they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And they see His power. But then, in addition to that, the Scripture also teaches us that when God sets free the captive, then that also produces a very unpleasant confrontation with our own slavery to sin. Now, this is true for the converted and the converted and the unconverted. So everybody in the room, this is true for all of us, whether converted or not converted. When we see the power of God set the captive free, and that's what Jesus came to do, Luke 4, He came to set the captive free, and He has set the captive free. When we see God set the captive free from their bondage to sin, that necessarily produces in us a conviction of the sin that we need to be set free from. Follow what I'm saying here. So let's think back to the man's history. Chains, cutting himself, wandering around, shrieking, naked, all this this picture of lostness, this picture of separation from Christ. Notice the two things that his lost, unregenerate condition produced in him. They produced... As Luke says, he didn't wear clothes. His life was a life of shame. And that's what sin does. Sin heaps shame upon us. Just as this man lived in the shame of his nakedness, so also our sin heaps shame upon us. Now, those who are unconverted aren't, as we said last week, not necessarily possessed of demons as this man is. But whether we're possessed of the demonic or not is really irrelevant because all people outside of Christ are slaves to Satan. There's no third option. We either serve the kingdom of goodness or the kingdom of God or we serve the kingdom of darkness. Those are the only two options. You do not have a third option to serve yourself or to be your own God. Many people think that they are, but you're really just serving the kingdom of darkness. You either serve the kingdom of Satan or you serve the kingdom of God. And so those who are possessed of demons or not, outside of Christ, we are slaves to Satan. 
And our slavery to Satan heaps shame upon us. Our bondage to sin heaps shame upon us, just like the demonized man. But the second thing that we see is his immersion in self-harm. Day and night, he would cut himself with stones. That is what sin does to everyone. Sin is the tool of its master. And its master wants to kill and destroy everyone. And so sin is always a process of self-harm. There is no sin that is not also self-harming to the one who is enslaved to it. And, and everyone who commits sin. John's Gospel, Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So sin always has this aspect of self-harm. Now you may not cut your arm with rocks like this man, but every sin in which you engage is harmful to you, is destroying you, is killing you. Those images on the computer screen are destroying you. That sinful attitude that you refuse to do battle against. That forgiveness that you refuse to extend is doing the same thing to you that the rocks were doing to the demonized man's arms and chests and legs. It's killing you. And so whether we are in Christ or not in Christ, remaining sin within us is doing the same thing. The picture is the picture of heaping shame and harming ourselves. And so as Jesus frees this man from his bondage to his demons, the townspeople can't help but see that and in their heart know I need to be set free from mine too. And that's the conviction that always comes when we see God set people free from sin. Now, God doesn't normally, often, set people free from a bondage to sin in such a dramatic, instantaneous fashion as this. Most of the time, the process is a long process of battling against sin. But regardless, it doesn't matter. When we see God have victory over sin and other people, it necessarily brings to us the conviction that we still have sin, that we need victory over. And for those who do not have the covering of Christ, that's a very convicting reality. And these townspeople, they don't want to deal with that. They want Him to leave. Do you know that the world will never celebrate Christ setting anyone free from any sin. It doesn't matter how heinous that sin is. It doesn't matter if that's the sin of being a serial murderer. The world will never celebrate God's setting anyone free from any sin. Think of the examples that we see in Scripture of those who have been set free 
in dramatic ways, those who have been set free in metaphorical ways. Think of all the times we see in Scripture. The man with the withered hand. Jesus heals his hands. The Pharisees hate him. The man born blind in John 9. The Pharisees hate him. The demonized girl in Philippi. The city hates him. Those set free from idol worship in Ephesus, the city hates him. The world will never celebrate or never approve of God setting anyone free of any sin because this world is ruled by the God of this age and the God of this age wants to kill and destroy all that he can. And so we see this so clearly and plainly, don't we, in the townspeople? Instead of celebrating, here it was a Jew came from across the sea to set free one of their own. And instead of a thank you, no, get out of here and don't ever come back. What a dramatic picture that we are shown. But now let's look at not only that was the first surprise of the passage, the surprising reaction of the townspeople, Even more surprising, let's look at Jesus' answer to the man's request. This is, I think, the most stunning aspect of the passage. Verse 19, And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Now, that's something remarkable right there, that the man still has friends. I mean, after all of this, he still has friends. I mean, that would be saying quite a lot. Actually, Mark literally writes there, go home to your own kind or to those who are of your own kind and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. What a tremendous testimony he has now. Verse 20, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So what is stunning, and we touched on this last week, and this was by far the the biggest aspect of questioning and wondering after the service last week was this. I mean, Jesus told him no. All he wanted to do was be with Jesus, to go with Jesus. And Jesus told him no. So what's stunning here is that there are three earnest requests made of Jesus in the passage. Three times Jesus is begged. The demons beg him, don't torment us. Don't send us to the waterless places. Instead, let us go to the pigs. The townspeople beg him, leave us. And the man who has been delivered from death to life and now has an earnest and genuine love for Jesus and wants nothing but to be with him, prays to Jesus, Jesus, please just let me be with you. And of the three requests, Jesus grants two and denies one. Jesus grants the request of demons. those who rebelled against Him before the creation of time and the world. And Jesus had to cast them out of heaven. Jesus grants their request. And He grants the request of the townspeople who want nothing to do with Him. They just want to to see Him leave. He grants their request. And the prayer of the one who loves Jesus, the one who Jesus crossed the sea for, I just want to be with you. He denies. 
And there's no indication in the passage that this request was based on, on a desire to, to get away from the, the ugliness of that situation, to leave his life behind and make a fresh start somewhere else. And all the people who knew him there, he just wanted to start over somewhere else. There's no indication. Luke's, or Mark says literally that I may just be with you. I just want to be with you. So the focus is not on what he's leaving, but who he wants to be with. So this is quite a shocking denial, is it not? That Jesus would grant the request of demons and townspeople who hate Him and deny the request of the one who loves Him. How do we make sense of this? Well, a number of ways. Number one, this is once again an important and helpful reminder for us. Never presume that you fully understand the mind of God. Never presume that you understand God so fully and so well that you can predict His next move. God, His ways, Isaiah 58 tells us, His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God wants to be known. We've said this repeatedly in this section, is that God is a God who desires to reveal Himself. He wants His people to know Him. He wants His people to understand Him. Nevertheless, that is not to say that we can understand an infinite God. We cannot. And this is once again a helpful reminder for us Though we can know our God, never presume that you know Him so fully that you can predict His every move. So that's the first helpful reminder. But let's go a little bit deeper than this. And I think that let's begin with this place. Let's begin by recognizing that all of us in our fallen condition, all of us share the same, many traits, but all of us share the same trait of thinking, and, and tell me if you agree with this, of thinking that you know what's best for you. Does it, do you all agree that all people think that we know what's best for us? And so therefore, because we think that we know what's best for us, how do we always think that God's blessings for us will look? They'll always look like yeses, right? Because we know what's best for us. And so what we ask for must be what's best for us because that's what we ask for. And so therefore, God's blessings must always look like a yes. Now, we know that to be untrue because the Bible says it. But nevertheless, in the depths of our heart, isn't that a hard thing to put aside that you really don't know what's best for you, that you really don't have a clue, actually, what's best for you, which is why the Scriptures will say to us that even our prayers... We have to have this mediator in our prayers that takes our prayers and sort of modifies them and changes them to make them appropriate prayers. We read about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So what Paul just said there was oftentimes we pray for things we had no business praying for. We ask God for things we had no business asking God for. But the Spirit intercedes and takes those prayers and I guess modifies them or corrects them so that they comply with the will of God. That's what Paul said in Romans 8 verses 27 or 26 and 27. So here we got these three requests. One request on the part of the man, but then these two other requests on the parts of the demons and the part of the townspeople. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught that when those who are not the children of God make requests of God, 
that God's answer for them is going to be for their benefit. And that's where we should absolutely be, or we should begin to understand here. When Jesus grants the two requests, don't think for one minute that his granting of that request was for their benefit. Look at what happened in both requests. The first request was on the part of the demons. Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. Don't torment us. Let us go to those pigs instead. All right, go. Well, what happened to them? They ended up in the abyss anyway. Jesus' granting of their request was not for their benefit. It was for their demise. Likewise, and this is the hard one, the townspeople also. Their request was, Jesus, leave us. Was that to their benefit? No. Jesus' granting of their request was not a blessing. It was a curse. Here's their only hope. Their only hope. Their only hope is on their shore. And they ask Him to leave. And He leaves. But the third request, once again, we must leave behind this notion that what we request of God is always for our benefit. The Scriptures teach us emphatically we don't know what to ask for. And as the man makes this request of Jesus, I know that this request is just to be with him, but we must trust and we must believe as a newly redeemed child of God, Jesus' answering of that request is for this man's eternal benefit. Because never once does God do anything for His children that is not for their maximum eternal benefit. So Romans 8 and verse 28 tells us that. All things work together for the good of those who fit the category of loving God and called according to His purpose. This man is a child of God and he loves Jesus and he makes a request of Jesus. And Jesus' no is the blessing of denial. The blessing of denial. Who can recall a time in your life in which you have asked something of God earnestly? God just Grant this, just do this, if you will just do this. And then sometime later you look back and God blesses you with just the understanding of knowing, God, if you'd done that, I would not be here. Things would not have turned out as they did. In the same way, He makes this request of Jesus and Jesus gives Him the blessing of blessed denial. Listen as I read the words of J.C. Ryle. He wrote these words two or three hundred years ago. Speaking here of Jesus' denial of the request of the man, he says this, There are lessons of profound wisdom in these words. The place that Christians wish to be in is not always the place that is best for their souls. The position that they would choose if they could have their own way is not always that which Jesus would have them occupy. There are none who need this lesson more than new converts, which this man is. Such people are often very poor judges of what is really good or really for their good, full of the new views they've been graciously taught, excited with the novelty of their present position, seeing everything around them in a new light, yet knowing little of the depths of Satan and the weaknesses of their own hearts, knowing only that a little time ago they were blind and now through mercy they see. Of all people, they are in the greatest danger of making mistakes." 
With the best intentions, they're apt to fall into mistakes about their plans in life, their choices, their moves, their professions. They forget that what we like best is not always best for our souls and that the seed of grace needs winter as well as summer, cold as well as heat to ripen it for glory. Let me read that sentence one more time. They forget that what we like best is not always best for our souls and that the seed of grace needs winter as well as summer, cold as well as heat to ripen it for glory. So this is an illustration of a man lifting up a request to God. Think with me of Proverbs 14 and verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but that way, the end of that way is death. This is a man lifting a request to God and Jesus in his love and in his mercy, giving him the gracious blessing of saying, no, there's something better. There's something greater. We don't know exactly what that is, but there's something far greater that Jesus had for him rather than getting in the boat with the other disciples. Because you know, even though Jesus would not allow him in the boat, all the spiritual promises were already his. Even though Jesus wouldn't allow him in the boat, Jesus was still with him. When Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, Jesus meant that for him too. When Jesus speaks those words we know of as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, when He speaks to the disciples, go into all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching to observe everything I've commanded, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus didn't just mean it for the people that He was speaking to. He meant it for this one too. And so even though He's not in the boat, Jesus is still with Him. And Jesus had far greater blessings for him. So lastly, and very quickly, let's just look for just a moment at the effect of this man's conversion. Because another question we had from last week was, what happened to the man? Where did he go? What happened to him? Well, first of all, we recognize that the man's le- anyone's legitimate testimony is always most difficult with those who know you best. Those who know us best are always the most difficult. That's always the most difficult testimony to give. This man is now sent to those who have held him down as he fought against the chains, as they have seen the wild look of rage and murder in his eyes. He now has to look into those same eyes and say, Jesus has changed me. I'm a new man. You knew me as the one that screamed in the tombs. You knew me as the one who was a murderer and would beat people up. You knew me as the one who lived naked. Now let me show you the new me. And that is the hardest witness that he can do. So Jesus has called him to a hard path, but the grace of God will be with him. The harder the path, the more grace, and this grace will be with him. But very very quickly, let's just end this by saying, what sort of effect would he have had? Now, we don't know. We don't know. But Jesus told him to go into the area of Decapolis. Decapolis, this area of ten cities. These ten cities and tell what the Lord has done for you and tell of the mercy that God has had upon you. Now, of these ten cities, one of the cities goes by the name, and you've heard this name, Philadelphia. That was one of the ten cities. Now, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus addresses the church in Philadelphia. Nowhere in the New Testament 
does an apostle ever go to Philadelphia. Nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus ever go to Philadelphia. Nowhere in the epistles is Philadelphia ever mentioned. Yet there's a church there, and it's one of the ten cities that he was told to go to. Is it possible that he goes to the city of Philadelphia and he tells people, you heard of me, you heard of me, but I am a new man, and let me tell you of the one who has made me new. But then secondly, we have another hint of evidence coming up in just a couple of chapters in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, we're told that Jesus returns to the same region. Verse 31, He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to Him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged Him to lay hands on him. In other words, Jesus returns to the Decapolis two chapters later, And they have heard of Jesus, they've heard of His miracle-working power, and they bring to Him people to be healed. I think, if nothing else, that gives us at least some evidence that this man's life was fruitful, that the fruit of his life was bountiful, that once again Isaiah 55 is confirmed for us that the words of the Lord will never go out from His mouth void, that they will always return with the effect for which He intended them. Jesus never wastes any time. He did not waste a trip across the sea. Jesus never wasted a long walk. There was never a meaningless meeting. There was never a pointless time in Jesus' life. His words always returned for the purpose that He intended. There was always the right woman at the well drawing water. There was always the short man in the tree who had come to the realization that his life, though full, was empty. There was always the blind beggar by the side of the road at just the right time. And there was always the demonized man in the tombs at just the right moment. Jesus' time was never wasted. His words never returned void. This is once again a reminder for us of the parable of the seeds that we are to be proliferous scatterers of the seed, to scatter the seed far and wide because the seed will always serve the purpose of the one who gives the, the word.